Please turn with me to the Gospel of John, John's Gospel, chapter 8. As we work our way through this gospel, we find ourselves this morning in chapter 8, beginning of verse 31. We'll consider verses 31 through 36 this morning. So beginning of verse 31, it says, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth And the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of these words that we find in your holy word. We pray that you would teach us by your spirit, apply these words to our hearts, to our lives even now. For your own glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A student of Christian doctrine or theology and church history will eventually come across the name Aurelius Augustine. He was a North African uh, Christian who lived in the um, 4th and 5th centuries, at the turn of the 5th century of our Lord. And um, he wrote many good things. He taught some things that were not so good. And at the end of his life, he actually wrote a book, uh, a detraction, saying, here's where I erred. But he's considered one of the fathers of the Christian faith and so forth. And um, one of his great works is his Confessions, the Confessions of St. Augustine. And uh, in there, he basically gives this spiritual biography or journey of how he came to the Lord, what his life was like before that, and, and what it was like as he came to the Lord. And really, it's a prayer to God. And uh, it was a joy for me to read it as a young Christian man. And, and uh, in there, he talks about how the Lord brought him to this point where he saw himself as in a mirror. How he was twisted, he said, unclean, spotted, vile, ulcerous, in his own words. And so he begged the Lord in prayer about his lifestyle that he needed to change. He was a sexually promiscuous young man, fathered a child out of wedlock. And so he he prayed to the Lord. And here's his prayer. He said, Lord, grant me chastity and self-restraint, but not yet. Grant me chastity and self-restraint, but not yet. And what he prayed there is at the heart of what our Lord teaches in our text for this morning. You see, Augustine, he knew that what he was doing was wrong. On the one hand, he wanted to be freed from it, but on the other hand, he didn't. He was bound to that desire for sexual uncleanness. Remember where we are in chapter 8 of John's Gospel. Remember last time in verse 30, as Jesus was speaking those words to them, uh, John tells us many 
Many of the Jews, that is many of the Pharisees, believed in him. If you look back at verse 13, it says, The Pharisees therefore said to him, the Pharisees. And then in verse 22, it says, So the Jews said. So remember in John's gospel, the Pharisees and the religious leaders are often called the Jews. So Jesus is having this conversation with them as it will become even more clear after our text for this morning. But the point is, many of them, it says in verse 30, believed in Jesus. And when it says they believed in him, believed in him we're going to have to understand that word belief in the context of John chapter 8, but also as Jesus teaches in Matthew 13 and the parable of the sower. There's good ground, there's bad ground, and there are different types of belief. There's temporary faith or belief in Jesus. And, you know, once the cares of this world come, once tribulation or persecution comes, that person no longer believes. And so there's a temporary faith, and that's not the faith that saves. It's not true saving faith, and therefore those who have such faith are not truly disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's why Jesus here in verse 31 says, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. You are truly my disciples if you abide in my word. And so Jesus here drives home the, the meaning of true discipleship. What it means to be a disciple of him, a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. You could say that there are several marks here then. Several marks of a true Disciple of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. That's how I've broken down this passage, and that's what we will consider. Well, then, first of all, what is a mark of a true disciple of Jesus? A disciple indeed. I think we see here, first of all, a true disciple of Jesus Christ continues or remains in the Word of Christ. A true disciple remains in Christ's word. That's in verse 31. He says, if, there's a condition, if you abide, if you remain in my word, you are my disciples indeed. What is a disciple, by the way? Uh, perhaps you know that word, that Greek word there, mathetes. It means a learner, a pupil, discoverer, a student of another. And in Jesus' day, a disciple would follow a teacher. A disciple would follow not only that person's teachings, but that person's way of life. Incorporate those principles into his life. And in Jesus' day, it was the responsibility of a student to seek out a rabbi or teacher that he could follow. And yet Jesus kind of turns that around because Jesus is the one who goes out. Right? He seeks those who will follow him. He goes to the fishermen and so forth, and he says, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. When we study the New Testament and the Gospels in particular, we find that a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ is one who worships God in spirit and truth. He is one who um, engages in service in the name of Christ. He witnesses of the person and work of Jesus Christ. He makes other disciples. And of course, being a true disciple of the Lord Jesus elsewhere, we are told that a true disciple takes up his cross daily, denies himself and takes up his cross daily and then follows the Lord Jesus. But in our text, in verse 31, Jesus says, if you abide in my word, 
You are my disciples indeed. So then one of the marks of a true Christian disciple, a disciple of Jesus, is that he or she abides in the word of Jesus. Now, why does he make this distinction here in this context? Well, if you look in verse 30 again, there were those who believed in him. And remember what we are told about Jesus in John 2. It's around verse 20. Jesus knew what is in man. He knows the thoughts and intents of the heart because he's the God man. And so Jesus knew where they were in, quote, their discipleship, in, quote, their belief. They had not yet come to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus. And so Jesus says, if you abide, if you remain, if you continue, if you carry on in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Superficially on the outside, they might say that they believed in Jesus. But the question is, had they believed in him savingly and been justified and forgiven because of true saving faith? In other words, a true disciple is one who remains in the word of Christ and in the word of God and experiences what we would call that transformative power of Christ. He, he continues in the word. He continues to follow the Lord Jesus. He continues to apply the teachings of Christ to his life, her life. And when we consider the nature of temporary faith, we ought to note that when the newness of commitment to Christ has worn off, a person will then discover whether he or she is a true disciple of the Lord Jesus. When one then feels the pull and the weight of the enemy, the devil, the world, pulling down, pulling him or her away from following Christ or You see your own sins like Augustine. You see the vileness of your own sin. What are you going to do? Are you going to continue? If you abide, if you remain, then you are a true disciple. So the key here is perseverance. True faith does persevere. The old commentator, J.C. Ryle, that old pastor, um, he compared true saving faith to um, a metal that had undergone the test of time, time and wear, as he put it. So when a metal undergoes the test of time and wear, the genuineness of that metal emerges. You'll see whether it's a solid metal or if it's just like gold plated. You know, some of you perhaps have gold or silver plated items, jewelry, whatever in your home. And over time, it just wears away and you see the, the cheaper metal to come through. And so the Christian faith is like that. If it's true, um, it's going to weather the test of time. It may have a chink here and there, but it's strong. It's it's withstood the test of time. It endures. It perseveres. And John, who gave us this gospel by the Holy Spirit, he wrote this later in 1 John, his first epistle. In chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Now by this we know that we know him, Jesus. So here's a test for us to see if we truly know Jesus. Now, by this, we know that we know him 
If we keep his commandments, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this, we know that we are in him. He who says that he abides in him ought to ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Did you catch that? If you say you're a Christian, if you are a true Christian, you ought to walk. You ought to have a way of life just as Jesus walked, just as his way of life. Now, does John teach there and is Jesus teaching here? If you abide, if you remain in my word, then you are my disciple indeed. Is he teaching that we become Christians, that we become his disciples based on something we do, based on our good works, based on merit? No, never. The Bible nowhere teaches that. That's called works salvation. And as we've seen, as you know, We are saved by the grace of God. In fact, that's why this gospel was written. John 20 and verse 21 tells us that these things are written so that we might know the son of God. And that by knowing him, we may have faith or belief in him. And by having such belief, we might have eternal life. John 20 and verse 31. And so faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And we are saved by grace through faith. So in other words, Jesus is saying this is one of the marks of being his disciple. This is one of the effects of being a true disciple, having true faith. What's the second thing here? I think our Lord here teaches that a true disciple knows the gospel truth. In verse 32, it says, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you or set you free. You shall know the truth. A true disciple knows the truth. To know is to learn, to understand. That's part of being a disciple, right? A learner. And so when Jesus says this, when he says you shall know the truth, what does he mean by the truth? The truth in general? The truth that is out there? Well, turn back, hold your finger there and turn back to chapter 1. John chapter 1. So this is the prologue, the beginning, the introduction. John is here telling us, the readers who read this gospel, what is going to happen. In verse 14 of chapter 1, it says, And the Word, that is the eternal Word, the second person of the Godhead, became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten Father, full of grace and what? Truth. So Jesus, in his incarnation, he comes down, he uh, takes upon human flesh, and as a result, he goes out into the world and he bears the gospel truth, the truth of God. In verse 17, It says, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There is a comparison here. And John, the Bible, is not teaching that Moses gave us error, that Jesus gave us truth. He's not teaching that. But he's saying there is a transition. There is a little bit of a contrast. Moses gave the law. He gave the the rule of life. 
But Jesus comes and he gives the truth and he gives the gospel truth, law and gospel. In John 14, 6, the truth is so associated with Jesus Christ that he says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And when Jesus prays in John 17, 7, he says to the Father, your word is truth. And so the truth here in our context in chapter 8, Jesus here, I think, is talking about the revealed gospel that has come down from heaven. The gospel truth given through Jesus Christ and eventually that which would be given through his apostles. John 16, 13. And so the truth here is the Bible in general and the gospel in particular. That's why the Bible was given. It not only shows us how to live, but it shows us where we came from. It tells us about the fall and God's remedy for the fall, how we might have a restored relationship with him. And that comes in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus says here, and you shall know the truth, he's talking about the gospel. That's what he's been teaching throughout his earthly ministry, right? We've seen that in John's gospel. Now, how do men actually come to know this truth? Well, as Jesus shows us, it's through biblical teaching. It's through biblical preaching. It's through reading of the scriptures and that word being applied to us by the Father, John 6, 45, being applied to us by the Holy Spirit, John 16, 13, as John 7, 17 says, when we apply it to our own lives, when we apply it to our own lives, then we will see that what he says is true. As Paul puts it in Romans 8, it's the spirit bearing witness with our spirit. So a true disciple remains in the word of God and the word of Christ. And that word is the gospel in particular as it is applied to the hearts of men and women and children by the Holy Spirit. And those are the ones that become true Christians. And so does this describe you? Are you one who has remained in the teaching of Christ? Or you want, you know, maybe young people, you're waiting to get out of the house. And, and once you get out, you're, you're done. You're not going to remain in this gospel, in the Christian faith. I'm not assuming that's true of you. But I do know human nature. This describes you. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you're my disciple indeed. And you shall know the truth. Well, there's a third thing here. About true discipleship. Disciples indeed. A true disciple is one who has been freed by the Son. That's in verses 32 and following. And so he says in verse 32, You shall know the truth, that is the gospel itself, the gospel truth. And the truth shall make you free. So a true disciple is one who remains. He just doesn't stand at the threshold of the Christian faith. He's not reluctant to make a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. He comes in through the door. He remains in that gospel. He understands the gospel. And that gospel sets him free. 
And what is the implication of these words of Jesus? That men by nature are not free. That men by nature are enslaved. And these Pharisees, they got it. I mean, if you look at verse 33, they answer him, um, Hello, we are Abraham's descendants. We've never been in bondage to anyone. And so they get it. Why do they appeal to Abraham? And how can they say they've never been in bondage to anyone? Because as a people, they've been in bondage to the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians. And who are they under right now at this time? The Romans. Maybe they weren't in servitude. Maybe they had been conquered, but they weren't slaves in that respect. Maybe that's what they mean. Or maybe they've just forgotten. Maybe they, they are in denial. And they appeal to Abraham. Maybe this is just an illogical appeal, a diversion to get Jesus off track. You know, today, when perhaps this was true of you at one point in your life, someone came to you, told you about the gospel, that um, you're a sinner, you needed salvation. Or maybe when you talk to people, you hear this, this, this claim, well, I grew up in the church. Uh, my father was a deacon. My, my great-grandfather, he was a, a pastor. Or I'm a member at first so-and-so church. So? That doesn't mean you're a Christian. You know, maybe you walk the aisle somewhere. We don't have altar calls here, but some churches do. And like I heard a preacher say, if I roll a ball down the aisle, does that make that ball a Christian? You see what they're, they're appealing to their physical lineage their pedigree, that Abraham was their great, 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 great grandfather, that all of the promises God made to Abraham because of his faith automatically apply to them. So they're appealing to Father Abraham. They're denying their own slavery as a people. What's at heart here? What's the issue? It is spiritual pride and racism. It is spiritual and racial pride. I mean, racism itself is an ugly thing. So is spiritual pride. Perhaps when you read these words, the truth shall set you free. You think of Martin Luther King Jr. Rightly so. The Jews themselves, they thought that they were God's special people to the extent that no one else would enter the kingdom of God. In their extra biblical writings, their rabbis, they had these books here and there. and They would write certain things. And here's some of the things they wrote. They said that Abraham, quote, would sit at the gates of hell and would not permit any circumcised Israelite of decent moral character to enter it. They wrote, a single Israelite is worth more in God's sight than all the nations of the world. They even said that the world was made for Israel's sake. Do you see that arrogance? Such arrogance can creep up from our hearts as well if we're not careful. Well, Jesus has already taught the Pharisees. He's already taught Nicodemus. That it's not by one's physical birth that he or she enters the kingdom of heaven. No, he says you must be what? Born again. 
You must be born from above by the Holy Spirit. Only then can you see, understand, and enter the kingdom of God. And so if you look at verse 34, Jesus, he explains himself. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. When he uses that word, whoever, that's kind of the flip side of John 3, 16. You know, whoever believes in the son will have eternal life. And that's glorious. That's gospel truth. You don't have to be a Jewish person to come to God, to enter the kingdom of heaven, to receive the forgiveness of sins. Any Gentile can come to Christ. Well, here he says, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. So that is not only speaking about the Gentiles, it's speaking about them, even the Pharisees. I mean, after all, they committed sin. If they hadn't, God, God would not have made allowance for sin in the Old Testament with the sacrificial system. And of course, Romans 3 teaches clearly, whether it's Jew or Gentile, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So there's no distinction. Now, it is really as if Jesus is saying, look, I'm not talking about political enslavement. I'm not talking about physical slavery. I'm talking about slavery to sin. Now, sometimes, as is the case here, people... They either don't see it or they don't want to admit it. What is Jesus saying here? He is telling us that the person who has never become his disciple truly, his disciple, is enslaved, is in servitude, is in bondage to sin. That this person who is not a Christian is living in shackles. It has, he or she has spiritual chains on their wrist, on their ankles. And it's only by the Son of God that one can be made free. And the irony is that even when someone chooses, as they say today, to live free, I just want to be free. They sing about it. They encourage others to go about the world and to live a free life. What they mean is to live in rebellion against God like the prodigal son and waste their lives. They're not living freely. They're living in bondage to sin. And so it's possible to be free politically, to be free physically, and yet still be enslaved to sin. At the same time, it's possible to be free spiritually and to be enslaved politically or physically. There might be a repentant sinner on death row who has become a Christian, and they are bound. But they're free because the Son has set them free. Or Christians can and sometimes do live under tyrannical governments. They may be bound to their homes or a certain geographical region, they may be forbidden to do certain things, but they are free because they are Christians who have been set free by the Son of the living God. Just, just listen to what the Bible says for a moment about the bondage to sin. This is that Christian doctrine, original sin, the effects of 
Adam's first sin where he cast himself, um, his wife, his children, his children's children, all men, us today, into that estate of sin. And here's the effect of it. Genesis 6, 5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Proverbs 20, verse 9 says, Who can say, I have made my heart clean, I am pure from my sin. The answer expects no one. Job 14, 4, Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one. Jeremiah 13, 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Does the Ethiopian or the the leopard have that ability? Well, no. Then may you also do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Ephesians 2, Paul tells those Ephesian Christians that before they were made alive by the Spirit, believed in Jesus, he says, you were aliens to the commonwealth of Israel. He tells them, you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Who is that? Satan himself. Before we were Christians, we followed the desires of Satan. I could go on and on and on. But the gospel comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, who in Luke chapter 4 went into the synagogue who quoted from Isaiah and said these words. Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. You see, just as Moses was used by God in the Old Testament to deliver his people from the house of bondage, God has used his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver his people out of their house of bondage. Jesus Christ has come to set his people free, to set them free from the bottle, to set them free from the needle, to set them free from sexual immorality, even to set them free from spiritual pride and self-righteousness. If you continue in his word, you will know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And so as we think about what Jesus says here, we have a true understanding of Christian liberty. You know, there, there comes that time in your Christian life where you, you ask the question, well, does God allow me to do this? Does God allow me to do this? May I have a sip of this or, or listen to this type of music or go to this movie? Whatever it may be, and you have to talk about Christian liberty. And I'm not denying that. But true Christian liberty means that Jesus has set us free. Free from sin's penalty, yes. But also free from sin's power. Our own confession says that true Christian liberty consists in the freedom from the guilt of sin and the condemning wrath of God from this present world, from bondage to Satan and the dominion of sin. 
And you say, Kevin, I still sin. Yes, but you don't have to. There's been a breach with sin's power. Christ has taken the sledgehammer to your chains. He's not only erased all of your guilt, he's removed the power so that Paul says in Romans 6, do not subject yourselves to sin's power, the dominion of sin. In 1 Corinthians 6, 20, it says, you, I mean, these people in Corinth came from a horrid, horrid society. Our culture is headed there. If we're not already, we're probably already there. We're, We're there. But they came out, they were washed, they were sanctified, they were justified in the name of the Lord God, the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. And Paul says later in 1 Corinthians 6, 20, he says, you were bought with a price. You were bought as a slave. To be set free. And what does he say after that? Therefore glorify God with your body. Glorify God. And so this should bring us as God's people humility. Humility. Paul writing to the Cretans. Who were of a pagan culture. Those Christians there in Titus 3.3. He, he commands them. He says, show humility to all. He's already categorized the culture there and talked about how evil it is. And he's said that God has sought you out. He's circled you out and called you to Jesus. And, and then he says, show humility to all men. You know, those ones who are evil and wicked. Then he says this. Titus 3, 3, for we ourselves, we're also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Paul says, look, yeah, that was you. That culture there, that was you. You served what they continue to serve. God saved you. Be humble. Show humility. You say, Kevin, I've I've been in the church all my life. I grew up in a Christian home. I don't know what it's like to do all those things. Well, I'm here to tell you what Paul says, but for the grace of God. I was in a conversation recently. And uh, we were talking about the wickedness of our culture. And someone made the comment about someone having a sick mind. (laughs) And I said, you know what? I have a pretty sick mind too. God has sanctified my mind. He is sanctifying my mind. And that probably did not have the effect I intended. But my, my intention was to say, were it not for the grace of God, I would have such a mind. And so as we think about this, no Christian should be prideful. Well, Jesus continues... And he shows that only he can provide the freedom that we need, the freedom that he offers. You know, they say, how can you say you will be made free? He says the same in verse 34 that he's already said. And then in verse 35, he talks about the slave and the, the free in the same household. Verse 36, therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Before that, a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son Abides forever. I think here the son is himself, but also those who become sons. And so Jesus, I think, is showing 
that a slave serves in the household, but the slave could be sold. The slave may not abide in that household forever. His status is not guaranteed. And he's speaking a word of warning here to these Jewish people. He's telling them, you should not rest on the fact that you are part of God's visible church, Israel. Israel. You're part of visible Israel. You know, alluding to the fact, hey, they will be kind of wiped out in, in A.D. 70 by the Romans. Um, the covenant curses are going to come upon them unless they put their faith in him, in the Son. He could as well be alluding to Abraham's household where there was Ishmael, the illegitimate son. But then there was the promised son, Isaac. And there was a point in Genesis, I think, 21 yeah, in verse 10, where Isaac was cast, not Isaac, Ishmael, <clears throat> excuse me, Ishmael was cast out of Abraham's house along with the bond woman. Only Isaac, the true son, received the covenant blessings. And so Jesus, through his work, enables those who come to him to become adopted as sons, members of God's household forever. Earlier, I talked about Augustine's prayer and how that illustrated, I think, bondage to sin unless the son intervenes. Well, Augustine had another insightful prayer. And it was later in life, after he was a Christian, he, he prayed this. He said, and I quote, Grant, O Lord, grant or give what you command. And command what you will. Grant what you command and command what you, what you will. So the last half, he's saying, Lord, command whatever you will of me and your people. But before that, he says, grant what you command. What is he saying? He's saying what Jesus says in John 15, without me, you can do nothing. Lord, ask of me to do whatever you want to do, but give me the power. Give me the ability to do it. And that struck a controversy in his day with Pelagius and all of that. Pelagius believed in the ability of man. That if God commanded you to do something, you must have the ability to do it. But Augustine realized the scriptures that we were enslaved to sin, dead in our sins and trespasses. So he has that prayer. And so if that is the case, which it is, that we must be set free first, then who gets the glory? God. To God be the glory for great things He has done. Is that not what our Lord keeps driving home to us in this gospel? Amen. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for setting us free. We confess, O oh Lord, we still sin. We have been given new hearts. Out of that new heart, we have new holy desires, but we also have remaining sin. We pray that you would continue to conquer us as our king. We thank you that you are a priest as well, that you are a prophet. You speak to us your word. May it take root in our hearts today and bear fruit. 
demonstrating that we are free and truly your disciples indeed. We pray in his name. Amen.